Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for all episodes, you can go to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Susan Lyon, president and managing partner of BBG Ventures, an early stage fund backing the new wave of female founders who are transforming consumers' everyday lives. Some of Susan's investments include Zola, NextGenVest, and Future Family. Now, Susan has had quite a remarkable career. Previously, she founded and led Premier Magazine, then rose to become president of ABC Entertainment. She was also the CEO of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, CEO and then chair of Guilt.com, and she led AOL's brand group before launching BBG. It was an absolute pleasure having Susan, and I cannot wait to share this one with all of you. So without further ado, here's Susan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Very well. Thank you. So tell me how you became involved and interested in venture capital and transitioned from running media companies and and e-commerce companies. Sure. Uh, I would say that it was because I saw a need and an opportunity. So when I was at Gilt in 2010, 2011, uh, I started meeting a lot of uh, female founders. Um, women who were starting companies uh, to solve some consumer problem. I don't think five years earlier that would have been possible. By 2010, the cost of launching a startup had come down dramatically. I mean, really dramatically. So that uh, someone with a great idea, but not necessarily a lot of venture capital, could go out and launch a product or a service and at least see if the market embraced it. And as a result, we started seeing, as I said, a lot of young women coming into the space. And they all had the same story about raising money. They would walk into a room filled with guys and they'd have to explain how women think about X or Y before they could even start pitching their company. Um, And... I've been, I've been really following the female consumer throughout my career. Um, everything I've done in, in media, magazines, television, consumer products, um, e-commerce uh, has all been focused on that consumer because women are the dominant consumer. I, I don't have to tell you this. We buy or uh, make the final decision on 80, 85% of all consumer purchases. So it started to make sense to me that if there were large numbers of women starting companies and they were having a hard time raising money, that there was actually an opportunity to create a new kind of VC that would um, invest in founders who intuitively understood that dominant consumer. And so BBG Ventures was born. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. So what were, what were some of your learnings uh, from working in media and e-commerce that, that, that significantly impact you when it came to venture capital? Well, I'd say the biggest one was um, really, again, around that, that dominant consumer, right? So women buy more magazines, we watch more television, 
Um, we certainly purchase more, whether it's on, on e-commerce or offline. And so I have a long history of trying to understand what is going to make a difference to that woman on the other end, right? What is going to appeal to her? How do you talk to her? Where do you find her? And so those were the kinds of things that I think I brought to the table when I moved from operating companies to, uh, to investing in companies. No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I know, of course, you know the numbers, uh, less than 10% of funding, uh, women receive less than 10% of funding and less than 3% of equity ownership uh, for women CEO. Uh, and companies with a female founder has have um, outperformed companies with all male founding teams by by sixty three percent. And of course, there's a big equity pay gap as well that Carta does an excellent job diving into. Uh, despite the unequal playing field women founders have to go through, do you think venture capital is moving quickly enough to bridge the gap and invest in women founded companies? Um, I, I would say no, but I'll say that with a, a caveat, right? So. If you look at the amount of venture capital that was invested in female-only companies, uh, companies with just female founders, it was 2.2% last year. It was 2.2% the year before. 85% of all that venture capital went to male-only teams, and the other, let's call it 13%, 12 13%, went to mixed teams. So it is still um, a deeply uneven playing field. But what I will say is that if you look just at the early stage investments, right, angel seed investments, uh, a much larger percentage of those are going to female founders. I think it's gonna take a, a long time um, and we're talking, I don't know if it's three years, five years, 10 years, but for these companies to, to mature enough to be going out to raise growth rounds where you begin to see 20, 40, 60, $100 million raised in a round, that takes time. Um, and these are, for the most part, young companies. So the number of funding rounds that... Uh, that are going to women is actually growing quite quickly. Uh, it's just the total amount that is still really stagnant. And that has a lot to do with the fact that women aren't getting that big capital infusion that you see when, when a company gets to a series C or a series D. What are some initiatives or things you'd like to see happen uh, when it comes to venture capital and entrepreneurship to help empower women? Well, the biggest one is getting more women into positions to make those decisions, those investment decisions. It's still over 90% of the investment partners at VC firms are guys. So uh, until you get people who, who understand that female founder, and even more importantly, have networks that will surface the best female founders and will get access to that deal flow. That's the, the key thing that needs to happen. I will say one other thing that, that I think will have a massive impact is when, let's call it 10 companies that are female founded 
um, either exit as unicorns, so they sell for over a billion dollars, or they IPO. And the minute you start to see that kind of volume, a, a wave of female-founded companies that are worth major dollars, that's going to start changing that dynamic inside VC firms very quickly. This year, literally six months ago, uh, three companies here in New York, Rent the Runway, Glossier, and Away, the, the luggage company, all raised rounds at over a billion dollar valuation. At least two of those three companies, I think, have aspirations to go public. The first of the venture-backed companies that went public was Stitch Fix, not quite two years ago. Um, and that's been quite a successful IPO. Um, it's been up as much as almost 2x, let's call it 70% over its IPO price. It's come down again, but it's still trading above its, its IPO price. And in, a, um, in an IPO atmosphere that has not been very kind to, to tech companies, that's not bad. But I, I do think that that momentum is building for, for some of those early tech companies, companies like uh, Glossier, Rent the Runway, um, and a number of others uh, that are, uh, are going to uh, either go public or, or be sold for significant values uh, in the next couple of years. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Stickfish is, is an excellent example. And I know that, that female founders, uh, of course, they have to, a lot of the times, look, look to make their business uh, sustainable a lot earlier than male founders, since you aren't having the same opportunities to, even if you're able to raise a seed or a series A, it's the follow-on capital with a uh, series uh, B, C, D. So you have to be uh, sustainable and look at profitability a lot more care and, and more, almost optimize for profitability, I'd imagine, a lot more early on in your cycle. Uh, so, uh, and of course, you know, right now we're having, we're seeing what's happening with WeWork and Uber and Lyft and optimizing for growth, even though they're still losing uh, billions uh, every year. Uh, and have such high valuations. So my question for you is: when when make when startups make their pitches to you in your current in your current portfolio, uh, are you making sure that profitability is being optimized among founders? It's it's too early to really want a founder to optimize for profitability when you invest at seed. What you want to understand is that founder really has a, a clear idea of why and how she's going to make money from this, whether it's a service or it's a product, and that uh, in success, this would be a profitable company. So we do get a lot of pitches from people who, um, who really don't think hard enough about the unit economics of what they're selling and so uh, there just isn't enough margin there for them to be profitable ultimately. Once they, they take investment from us, we do get companies to think about what they would do, how they would continue to operate if there was a market downturn and they were not able to raise again. So you need to have a plan B. That doesn't mean that you move to plan B, uh, but it means that you 
you think about it, you know where you would pull the reins in so that you could continue to fight another day. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I know recently uh, investment rounds just have seemed to explode. What's considered now a seed a few years ago might have been considered a, a round. How, how do you approach this fundraising environment and price when evaluating startups? There are definitely you know, very pricey rounds out there. And in a few instances, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely right because the founder um, is really seasoned and has done this before and has a great idea and it's, it's addressing a market that needs to be disrupted. But the vast majority of the companies that are maybe overpriced shouldn't be. So we're very careful about, about what we invest in and what we think the valuation could and should be. Um, as a result, we have been doing a few pre-seeds because we believed in the, the product, we believed in the founders. And I think if you balance your portfolio so that, that you overall have got, uh, let's call it seven, eight, nine, ten 10% of a company's equity, um, and you're not breaking your model with the valuations, you're okay but you, you just have to be more careful. And I think part of the reason this is happening is that, that so much capital has been raised in the last three, four years, especially by companies or by, by firms that have been seed firms, right? These are the, are the VCs who, who have been very, very successful seed investors. And what happens is that you start with maybe a $5 million fund, then a $50 million fund, then a $100 million fund, then a $200 million fund. And some of them are, are now operating with the $300 million fund. And so they need to invest more in a company, right? They, they can't really make the fund work investing $500,000 or $700,000 or even a million dollars in, in companies. It needs to be three, maybe $4 million for it to work. So whether they now call that a, a Series A or they call it a seed, it's definitely changing the, the landscape in cities like New York and San Francisco. Right, right. That that makes a lot of sense. And in talking about the pitch and the diligence process, how do you know or can identify if this really is a consumer pain point? Um, identifying the consumer pain point is not very difficult. Um, they're quite obvious. If you are a female VC and you spend time in this, this arena, the, the, the pain points are pretty clear. I think the the place where you have to diligence is is this solution something that is going to work for people and is this founder someone who you believe can actually be strong enough resilient enough to take it all the way so a lot of our diligence goes into the founder or the founding team and another chunk goes into the market and how big that market is 
And when I say market, I mean the, the truly addressable market, not the size of the, the healthcare market or the beauty market, but whatever the target market is for this product or service and making sure that, that the competitive set doesn't have either too much of a head start or a better product or any of the other reasons that, that could keep your company from actually winning. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine also it's, it's a lot of uh, analyzing the actual founder market fit and seeing if, if they actually have a, have an, uh, if this is actually an appropriate solution uh, to the actual problem. Yes. If the solution is one that is viable and doable, and then uh, is, the, is the, the competitive set, which may include legacy companies or legacy brands, but also startups. Are you confident that there isn't someone who is further along with a better product? Right, right. I know that online marketing distribution channels are heavily concentrated uh, between Facebook and Google, and this is becoming increasingly more expensive to run ads with increased competition. Uh, how how do you think about customer acquisition today, with the given the rise in prices, and how does this influence you uh, with uh, an actual product strategy for uh, when you're evaluating startups? Yeah, we look hard and fast at whether the founder, whether the founding team um, has been able to show that they can get organic interest in the product. It doesn't mean you're not going to, to do any paid marketing because obviously you are, but if you go into a startup just relying on paid marketing today, it's virtually impossible to win. You need to to have something about the brand, the product, the campaign, or the founders that enables you to get media to want to cover you, consumers to want to share whatever it is you're doing before you start spending money on on paid acquisition. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, and, yeah, and, and I'd imagine when you're when you're evaluating like a DTC company that you're 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 looking for um, a lot of what you're looking for is the actual organic growth piece because as you say uh, you can't just strictly rely on on customer acquisition um, and I know you have quite a large portfolio uh, time allocation I'd imagine must be very difficult amongst your your entire portfolio do you tend to spend more of your time focus on on the winners or those that are struggling or in in the portfolio or or what's your kind of method in terms of uh, time management it's it's never easy uh, but we tend to spend more time with our founders when we first invest. Um, and part of our, our promise when we put money into a company is that we're going to really help you to be successful initially, and we're going to help you get to a place where you can raise your Series A. Once a company has raised another round, our kind of initial job is done, and we can spend less time on that company. We will still try to do a quarterly call with them. We will still be available whenever they need something specific, but the, the kind of intensive involvement is really from that seed to, uh, to Series A. And then there's a natural shift from our voice to 
whoever the new investor is. Got it. Got it. What are some of the trends in consumer that you're most excited about or focused on? So there are a lot. Uh, I would say we're, we're very interested in, in the emerging consumer, uh, the, the Gen Z consumer, uh, who's quite different from, from his or her older brothers and sisters. These are kids who kind of came of age, um, with 9-11 and uh, were in grammar school when 2008 Great Recession happened. So they are you know, more thoughtful about price um, and definitely more, uh, more committed to sustainability and more interested in, in a company's values as well as their, their products. So I've been around long enough to have seen several generational shifts. And I know that every time that happens, it's a huge opportunity because uh, the, the ascending generation does not really want their parents' brands or their big brother and sister's brands. And so it creates a big opportunity for new brands to emerge and, um, and become dominant. Do you think that the shift towards Gen Z, that this is more uh, from millennial to Gen Z, this might be more uh, drastic to uh, than other shifts in in different uh, generations. I do. Um, that that remains to be seen, but there are certainly different attitudes towards the future, different attitudes towards uh, towards corporations, and a different sense about what you should have to pay for something. So uh, all of those things, I think, contribute to what could end up being a, a very profound change. What is something that you would change when it, when it came to venture capital? Venture capital is a, has been slower to change than a lot of other uh, sectors or a lot of other uh, groups, in part because these are partnerships. They're not, they're not corporations, right? This is not a situation where um, you have a board that comes in and and says, "Hey, we're not uh, we're not keeping up with the times." These are more like law firms and and private banks than they are like like Fortune 500 companies. So they they also have a a low profile outside of the world. So there hasn't been a lot of pressure on them to uh, to diversify. I, I think that there is far more awareness in the VC world uh, than five years ago when we launched BBG Ventures that something has to shift here. We've seen a number of formerly all-male partnerships uh, bring in their first female partner. Still, 75% of them do not have a single female partner, not a single female investing partner, someone who has a seat at the table. But I think they recognize that in order to get access to the best deals over the next decade, that they need to have more diversity on their teams because this still operates the way that it always has, where uh, you get a warm introduction to a founder from somebody you know well who knows the founder well. And when most of the founders looked like Mark Zuckerberg, I was just fine to have a, a very tight group of partners who kind of look the same. But today, you have a far more diverse founder universe. 
or ecosystem. And those founders are making products for a highly diverse population of consumers. So it just makes good sense to have uh, a partnership that more closely reflects the people you're building for. And uh, I, I would say that's the, the biggest shift that I think needs to take place. VC is not the only, uh, the only area where we see this. We see it in, in public boards. We see it in lots of areas of government. Um, but uh, definitely something that, that has to change if these firms are going to continue to be successful. How do you feel about uh, coal introductions? Or do you think if, if you have a startup, do you think that you should search for a warm introduction or just reach out coal, whether it's to, uh, to venture capitalists or, or even angels? A warm introduction is always the best. We have actually invested in at least one company, maybe two, that came in through Hello at BBG Ventures. Um, but given the volume of introductions we get now, uh, it's a lot harder for, for somebody to get our attention who doesn't have an introduction. And it's not because we don't want to, to pay attention to those. Um, it's just because there's a limited number of hours in the day. We're two partners. Uh, my partner, Nisha Dua, uh, and I have been working together for six years. We founded BBG Ventures together, and we have two people who, who are on the team, but it's a tiny office, and so uh, there's, there's only a certain number of, um, of founders we can meet with. Of course, of course. There's only there's only uh, 24 hours in a day. That I mean, that actually that that absolutely makes sense. So, what's what's one of your favorite books, uh, or maybe two of your favorite books that have impacted you uh, personally and professionally? Oh my gosh, um, I'm a pretty prolific reader, and I read a lot of fiction as well as uh, nonfiction. I just finished Bob Iger's book, which is actually pretty great. Um, uh, he, he does a really good job, I think, of, of telling the story of his, uh, growing from being the lowest peon at, at ABC to being the CEO of Disney. And he, he manages to weave in a lot of very, very important management you can't call them tips, but things to live by. I, I was really impressed. I, I loved uh, Our Man, which nobody in your audience is going to have, have read, but it was, uh, it's a fantastic biography of a man named Richard Holbrook, who was um, Undersecretary of State twice, I think. And it's just a fantastic look at U.S. foreign policy over the last 50 years. Um, so for people who like history, it's beautifully written by George Packer. And uh, because Holbrook was in so many of the kind of key areas of the world and key moments in history, it's a fantastic primer. That's excellent. I'll certainly have to check both those out. What's one company that you've recently invested in or you work with that you're very, very proud of and very, very excited about? 
We invested in a company called Blue Land that actually has been announced, so all good. Love the founder. She she started the company largely because she was looking for a way to to address the plethora of plastic bottles in the world and the impact it was ha- uh, having, particularly on the oceans. Um, but the way she she addressed it actually is a consumer solution that uh, was brilliant. So she came up with um, multiple form factors and only I'd say four or five of them have launched thus far. Um, There's another dozen behind these. Uh, But these are form factors that uh, don't demand plastic bottles. She launched with three cleaning products that are tabs that go into water um, you can use your own bottles, you can use a wine bottle, you can use a, a plastic bottle you're not throwing away. Um, and uh, they, they immediately become um, as good or better than the three best products in, in that space. So one is a window cleaner, one is a general cleanser, and one is a bathroom cleanser. And uh, it's great because you can order refills and they come in tiny packets that um, that cost virtually nothing to either purchase or certainly uh, ship and it's a it's a small start in what is a huge problem but i think she's building a brand that that is both excellent the products are well tested and they are really great but there is a a value driven reason for buying from this company and i think that's going to help her long term yeah that's awesome i i, I know you were speaking before but i saw blue land on on chart tank and they were very very impressive we were, we're really excited about it. it's a company called spring health that is um b to b to c and we do sometimes look at a, a problem and realize that it can be better solved with a uh, B2B solution than, uh, than going direct to consumers. And this is one of those companies, they take over mental health care for companies. Um, and they are able to get employees to the right kind of care. Uh, significantly faster than any company is able to do it on their own. Um, Very impressive team that came out of Yale. They're using uh, a lot of data to to do their work. Um, And uh, the great thing is that it's both um, a huge benefit to the employees of the companies that that have adopted it, Um, but it's also saving those companies money. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check out Spring Health. That sounds really, really fascinating. So what's what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, but didn't and wish you did in, in retrospect? Well, one we talk about quite frequently is Daily Harvest. And I think we were not, um, or I was not, cognizant of, of how, uh, how many people liked to drink their uh, their meal instead of eat it. 
and I was not at all sure that 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 enough people would subscribe to a product like that, but it's turned out to be hugely successful. So um, there there are always going to be companies that that you let go. No way to uh, to be right a hundred percent of the time. What you hope is that you're going to be right enough of the time that you deliver good returns uh, to your investors. Another uh, investor that I uh, had a conversation with was uh, Hayden Williams, and he actually also said Daily Harvest as the company. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. And so, what's what's one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies? I think I would say do a lot of homework before you make a decision that this is the company you want to launch. Because it's very, I have a hundred ideas every month. I'm sure you do too. I've got one sister who has an idea every time I have dinner with her about, you know, why isn't there this? And truth be told, uh, even great ideas either can already be, um, be in the market. You just don't know about them yet. It does take time for a company to, to build awareness. It could very well be that there are uh, good reasons that something like this doesn't exist. There can